John, how dare you, sir? Have you no decency, sir? Sir, sir. What? You can't you can't tantalize us and our Instagram followers with, oh, I saw Dora the Explorer this weekend <laughs> and didn't and not proceed to have a whole discussion about it. So uh, strap that's in for the next 90 minutes for, as we discuss the live action. Yes. So strap <laughs> in for the next 90 minutes as we are going to talk about the live action Dora the Explorer. You, more appropriately, you are going to talk about it. I'm just going to pepper you with questions first. <laughs> okay, Swiper. first of is all... Is he sweeping? Is he sweeping in this movie? <laughs> no, Greg, because Swiper swipes. He does not sweep. He swipes. <laughs> oh, I, okay. So Swiper no sweeps. I thought Swiper no swiping? Or, yes, it's going? literally just Swiper no swiping. Okay, all right. And he is fine. voiced Fair by uh, 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 Benicio Del Toro. That's an Very nice. Factor. That's yes. an ideal ideal role for him because he mm-hmm. already his eyes are so sallow. It's like he has a mask on at all times. <laughs> okay, so I do want to give the movie credit. They do lampshade. First of all, it's not that the movie is grounded whatsoever, but <laughs> like the most incongruous fact is that there is a cartoon fox running around who does seem to obey and control and talk to animals, or I mean, talk to the normal humans characters, especially when they make a joke out of Dora talking to Boots as if monkeys don't talk. That's ridiculous. And yet you have this, <laughs> this fox running around on two hind legs. It makes no sense, but whatever. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try to suspend disbelief. I'll try to meet you halfway in Nickelodeon films. Okay. <laughs> in otherwise, okay. what is a very grounded movie about the rich history of the Incans. Okay. Did you know well, the Incans also have seen an Indiana Jones movie? <laughs> I, so you're saying this is reminiscent of other action adventure films but while also trying to educate you on the history of the incan civilization no absolutely not what i'm saying is okay. that they they are playing with all the cliches but at least they lampshade it at one point a character does mention it's like we're in a jungle puzzle right okay guys we just need to pull the levers and then big wheels spin so they like make okay. jokes like that. First of all, two questions. Mm-hmm. One, I've never heard of the term lampshading before. Is that like gaslighting? No, it's <laughs> lampshading is you kind of point out the cliches that your screenplay is doing that you're about to engage in. Yes. Oh. So that way you you know don't have to come up with a cleverer solution. You lampshade. It's an ass yes. ass covering. I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. there's there's that part. And when you say grounded, so I wanted to ask, so they they acknowledge the absurdity of people talking to animals. In this case, Dora has a monkey sidekick. Is that right? Monkey has a uh, <laughs> monkey has a Dora sidekick. Dora yes. has a monkey sidekick named Boots. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, is that a cartoon CGI creation or? It is a CGI creation, but it abste- it, it acts like a monkey. So oh. I mean, obviously, he's a prankster and he's mischievous and he gets into weird scrapes along the way. But he is he's supposed to be. In this world, a regular monkey. Yes, in sharp contrast to the fox that is wearing a burglar mask and literally talking to the human characters. With the voice of Benicio Del Toro. Oh, of course, yeah. And of course, they even have a comment about that. Like, one of the character notes, like, why is the fox wearing a mask? Why does the fox need to be anonymous? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay, fair fair enough. All right, so you you suspended your incongruity for that. Yes. Uh, Now, John, third very important question. Mm-hmm. The whole conceit of this of this adaptation from a show on Nick Jr. <laughs> is that viewers could interact and respond to what's going on on screen. Like, doesn't Dora say, "Like, hey, look out for this," and then the baby? Yes, that is also turned into say, a yes. That is also turned into a big joke. Thankfully, within the first five minutes, that's dealt with. At some point, wait. You know, so you're or, saying the movie? You're saying the movie doesn't do that? No. Well, it turns it into a joke again. This is all very meta, Greg. 
Again, okay. this is for the older people in the crowd. And again, because I'm, we live in the tw- in the in the t- ten t- in the twenty teens, everything has to be meta. Everything's an in joke now. So everything you know, cliche wise, about Dora the Explorer, even if you're not a fan of Dora the Explorer, even if you've never experienced Dora the Explorer. If you're a lay person like one of us, they can, you know, you can tell, oh, they're making a joke about that because I kind of know that from the TV show. So, for instance, I, the movie opens with the fantasy world, you know, like her talking backpack, her talking map, and then it pulls out yeah. to reveal this is her and Diego playing as kids. And really, like, uh, they're like, oh, see, we're not really doing Dora the Explorer. This is like a facsimile of it. So the magic of the show that you loved as a child is now gone. (laughs) Exactly. It's been replaced with you as an adult. Okay. Um, I'm appalled. (laughs) I spend my hard-earned money, drag my ass to a movie theater, have to find parking, have to go through all the innovating subjects to actually get to the theater. To, to enjoy a movie at, at its optimal experience, even surrounded by other people, which mm-hmm. I don't like either, but <laughs> I spend all that and I don't get the main draw of Door the Explorer, which is an interactive experience in which I can call out swiper, no swiping, in which I can point out, look, it's there, Dora, you idiot. It's right behind you. Look, Greg, I know you were looking forward to any excuse to show off how good you are at Spanish. Yes, you exactly. can say delicioso. Yes, you can say muy bien, Greg. And I know yes. mommy and daddy clapped for you, and they were always very excited whenever you were able yes. to repeat back. But I'm yes, sorry. I was 21 at the time. I was 21 years old. I was really enjoying the show. It was muy bien. All right? And this is... This is I, I'm angrioso. I'm, I'm, I'm enraged right now. Greg, I'm sorry, okay? This is... Them's are the breaks, okay? Everything is meta now. Everything is a joke. Okay. Now, having said all that, eh, not that bad a movie. (laughs) How how does the lead actress acquit herself? That that also seems to be the most incongruous thing. Dora is supposed to be, obviously, a child. Well, no, she's a teenager in this version. Now she's a teenager. And again, it's played for laughs, the fact that she was raised in a very... I wouldn't call it sheltered, but a very different environment Mm -hmm. than the other kids' show. So, And she has this kind of boundless optimism that puts her in contrast with everybody else in the movie. So that works quite well. She's actually really quite good. Okay. Last question, I promise. Uh, Michael Pena in the movie. Does this continue his win streak of having the best performances in everything he does? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Okay. I can't argue. I'm thinking about Michael Pena. I'm thinking about all the performances in the movie. And of all the adult actors, yes, he probably acquits himself the best. I mean, granted, he's not in it a lot because he's only in it at the beginning. And then she has to go back to Los Angeles. And then she has to come back to find them. So he's not in it very much. But he, he does a great job. Okay. It's, it's again. It's hammy wanna... too. It's a kids movie, so it's kind of yeah. hammy. But everyone does a good job. It's fine. Well, it's, it's fine. Well, that's what we expect. I mean, even in roles like Ant Man, like mm-hmm. he's, he's he's hamming it up a little bit, but still very endearing. So this continues a, as I said, a winning streak of Michael Payne delivering a superb performance in terrible schlock. In this case, Thor the Explorer, but going all the way back to Crash. Mm. So good for him. <laughs> he was in Crash. You don't remember that? He was the no. only good part of Crash. He was the the father who was a locksmith and the uh <laughs> I'll just call him the Arabic guy because that's what the movie is. <laughs> so he's the Hispanic guy and then there's an Arabic guy who uh 
who is mad and thinks he's he's when his place is broken into, he he thinks the locksmith is in on it. So he goes to shoot the locksmith. But if you remember earlier, he didn't buy real bullets. He bought blanks. And when it looks like the daughter is like jumping into his father's arms and she gets shot and he screams out, "No!" Hmm. Um, it it turns out that it's actually a blank and and it's all resolved. So. You remember Crash, right? <laughs> Anybody else remember this? A brilliant screenplay, award-winning. See, I was going to say, Michael Pena will always be, in my head, the character from the fourth season of Treme. So, actually, no, he joins in the third season. But I'm one of, like, five people who watch Treme, so I have nothing yeah. to talk about with that. <laughs> okay, good for you. We'll, we'll talk about actual recommendations later. But okay. hey, welcome, hey, welcome to Aspiring Snobs. We are twin brothers uh, trying to fill out our film bona fides by mm-hmm. returning to classics that we've never seen before. Like Dora the Explorer and the Lost City yes. of Gold. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Usually, usually we, I think the last two episodes, we've broken up the format a bit by talking about something. But we'll get to earnest recommendations <laughs> later in our spotlight segment. But for now, John, let's talk about the classic that we're returning to this week. Yes. As uh, returning listeners may recall that Greg is a big stan of one yes. Kurosawa Akira. Yes. As he is credited we have done, here. Uh, we have done multiple Martin Scorsese movies, Steven Spielberg. We've even... We, hell, we've done more Wes Anderson movies than we have of the Grandmaster. <laughs> that is a, That should be a felony. No. That is wrong. Well, again, because... So the fact the that premise- we're finally... Uh, that, the, the fact that we're finally getting to 140 episodes without talking about the Emperor himself is, ah. is downright criminal. But, Greg, again, the premise of the uh, show is that one, one or either one of us hasn't watched the movie. And we could yes. ha- do, like, two solid months of nothing but Akira Kurosawa films because I've never, I haven't seen that many of his. But you've obviously seen almost all yes. of them. So Yes. Uh, but yes. we're filling in yeah. one key pr- uh, blind spot today with the 1957 classic, Throne of Blood. I think it's transliterated to the spiderweb castle, even though it's the forest castle that they're <laughs> technically in. But that's either here nor there. They give. It I mean, you a know, these late fifties exploitation title. Yeah, these these schlock masters are always like, how do we get butts into yeah. seats? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> call it the Wizard of Gore. That's what we'll call it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> call it them. They won't know what we're talking about. It's giant ants. Yeah. It turns out. <laughs> how about uh, Bordello of Blood? Already taken. Okay, Throne of Blood. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> John, now, yes. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought this up because that, I say that every week. But <laughs> I earnestly, I, I'm just absolutely chuffed to borrow Britishism. I adore Akira Kurosawa. There's my father. There's uh, my grandfather, and then there's Akira Kurosawa. I have seen nearly every one of his movies and have adored them completely. Mm-hmm. So 
the fact that I'm glad that we're getting to a blind spot in his filmography, this movie in particular, Throne of Blood, even though we could have done Rashomon or Seven Samurai or Ikiro or something along those lines. But I, I wanted to get to one that ne- neither of one, one of us have seen. Mm-hmm. However, it won't be a very fruitful discussion because like every movie that he had in the 50s, I just adore it and love it and <laughs> lavish it in, in back rubs and foot rubs. And so every collaboration of his with Toshiro Mifune and uh, Takeshi, Shim- Takeshi Shimura, like I'm just going to adore it. So mm-hmm. that's that's my cards on the table. Throne of Blood is great. <laughs> and I, I, I loved every second of it, just as I have with every other film that he had between 1948 and 19 uh let's say 9190 um but john this is this podcast is more about you what did you think of throne of blood it's fine it's It's fine how dare you (laughs) it's wrong no obviously again from a technical achievement this movie is uh, magical it's absolutely fantastic um Mm -hmm. story-wise i was a little kind of like eh, drifting off a little bit because you know classic oh we're just gonna adapt you know shakespeare clearly this is for those who don't know this is a simple adaptation of a midsummer's night's dream and (laughs) you know for magical creatures it's a a scottish play it's you know we're gonna (laughs) oh oh that's right we can't we can't talk about it that's right i forgot (laughs) (laughs) but oddly enough everything everything worked out in this production as we'll get to later but But yes, this is a, a ostensibly an adaptation of a, an old bard play. You'll be able to figure yeah. out which one. Uh, spoiler yeah. alert: it's not the Lion King. So, um, <laughs> and no, that's uh, the bad sleep well. But continue. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but like again, it's hard not to get swept away by the uh, vistas and the fog rolling in and the the stark yeah. black and white. What filter is this? Green? No, I demanded red. I said. Um, <laughs> but also. So it's impossible not to get taken away or swept away by the vistas and the fog rolling in Mm -hmm. and just the wonderful cinematography. But because this is based on a Shakespeare play, it's also a bit of a chamber drama. And I found during those parts, I was not as so much taken in. Um, Obviously, whenever the supernatural element presents itself, that's when I think he kind of let himself kind of get loose. But for those moments yeah. where it's kind of like quiet and it's it's just two characters talking, I was kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, let's get back to the sweeping vistas. Let's get back to the fantastic yeah. production design because they like built a whole freaking castle for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as was his empiric ways, he demanded like absolute kind of uh, pitch perfect perfection out of everything. So they went to the. He knew. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the fog. Yeah, let's talk about the good stuff, the production design, first mm-hmm. of all, um, first and foremost, because, yeah, he demanded kind of perfection and everything, and so, and he wanted to use extreme weather, the way he heightens dramas with extreme weather, you know, the rain and Rashomon, blah, blah, blah. I could mm-hmm. list a myriad of examples. Um, in this case, he wanted to use fog, so he dragged everybody's ass up um, the side <laughs> of Mount Fuji, and that's how they were able to get all this this incredible fog rolling in, and you know, the exterior of the castle didn't look uh, quite up to spec, so they just built the whole damn castle. <laughs> um, so you're right. Like, from the, from that standpoint, those all the all the grandeur of the scene looks great. Um, what I found, I think I agree with you there in that once, once we get into 
the interiors, mm-hmm. uh, which were shot on the set and obviously don't have the, the grandeur or, say, his sophistication with what's in the foreground, background, or the movement of people, that's when the movie suffers a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, God, God forbid I actually criticize um, <laughs> uh, the emperor himself. <laughs> But I will in his in his weaker moments. I think he imitates uh, these Jap- Japanese theater like no in the in the movie in this case of the movie no or Kabuki where it is a very small stage. Yep. There is no off stage, so it's people just kind of sitting still and talking. Mm-hmm. And so and he frames it that way. It's all it's very wide and yeah, characters aren't really moving. And when he does that, it's it, you're right. It's less compelling. And it really relies on the actor's skill. Now, thankfully, he has. <laughs> he has his own personal Klaus Kinski. Yes, he has the goods and services of Toshiro Mifune. John, what did you think of Mifune's performance? Because you've seen, yeah, you've seen him in Rashomon and, and Seven Samurai before this, but he's playing a, a, a different role this time. Uh, yeah, um, he plays mostly resigned for the first two acts, I would say. Um, and mm. then just a kind of balls to the wall third act. He's, you know, <laughs> he's let the paranoia get to him and he gets to play it yeah. at full levels operatic. Um, I guess you're right. Okay, I guess I, for the first act, yes, he's, he's very kind of stoic and a very loyal good subservient lord and you know obviously just like another title character from that bard play that we won't mention he uh yeah. he has to be kind of pushed into uh the darker sides <laughs> of ambition um and that's yeah. actually i don't know part of me kind of wishes that there was more of the supernatural element uh in the first act he gets greeted by this forest spirit and uh, he's with yeah. his buddy, and you know he, that's where he received. They received the prophecy that the Banquo, yeah, mm-hmm. the Banquo in this case, yeah, exactly. Uh, his, his, it's Captain Mickey, but yeah, his, mm-hmm. his, that's his Banquo basically. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and they get the prophecy that by the end of the day you'll be Lord of the Castle, or you know. But why mm-hmm. stop there? Um, and what I love about <laughs> the scenes involving the spirit is, you know, he gets to play with the staging. Like at a certain oh, point, yeah. at, at a certain point, the spirit disappears, and they go into the hut to like see what's going on this is all done in one take and then they go past the hut they're outside the hut and then when you turn around and the camera pulls back it's completely gone and yeah. there's another scene like that later in the castle where he could he swears he sees the spirit he's the only one obviously seeing yeah. the spirit but you know it does the same thing where the camera moves around and when it moves back it's gone and he's you know he clearly looks like he's lost his mind so and again mm-hmm. you know we were talking about his performance and his performance is obviously brilliant um because, you know, if <laughs> not just for how it's done, but also the amount at which he's doing it. So, yeah, <laughs> got to give him credit for that. Yeah, this is in sharp relief to, I'd say, his performances in the late 40s, early 50s, where he cast Mifune as this, like, high-wire guy. If you remember in Rashomon, he's the bandit, and he's laughing for, like, mm-hmm. half the performance. Uh, in Seven Samurai, he's 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 the only one who isn't technically a samurai, yeah. but he's an oaf. He's a goof. So Yeah, he's the kooky Like, this one, one you're right, he's, he's supposed to be more resigned, um, which I... I don't think like plays up to his skill. This is why I prefer, still prefer Rashomon and Seven Samurai to this. Um, but the one thing I'll also give credit for, not just the the whole performance being in his face. I mean, because he's like a silent film actor. He really exaggerates it. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I noticed is the makeup on him mm. is that's that's something that I think also like he took inspiration from No Style Theater and the and the mask that they have because him he he has makeup on that makes him look like a skull <laughs> that <laughs> it just makes his eyes more sallow and and it covers up the naturally handsome features of Mr. Mifune. <laughs> okay. Okay, Greg, slow yeah. down. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> I mean, that wasn't the makeup job I was noticing. Uh, I think the okay. the makeup department obviously spent a lot more time on his wife. Uh, his yes, wife, obviously the Lady playing. Macbeth character. Yeah, you said it, Greg. Damn it. <laughs> oh, I'm so- oh shoot, shoot. Sorry. Uh, the, yeah, the wife. Sorry. Uh, God forbid, nobody shoot me with arrows, please. <laughs> But yes, uh, the wife, obviously, the Lady Macbeth character, she's, you know, she's very stoic, very still. I noticed she's meant to kind of mirror the evil spirit who gave him, you know, the prophecy. So her makeup, too, is very kind of overdone and over the top as well, which I guess is kind of supposed to be indicative of the era. This is supposed to take place in the Edo period. So obviously the wives are dolled up in pure white moon face. Um, (laughs) But again, it also kind of goes along with the performance because the wife is equally kind of like cold and calculating and she's like oh well you could be lord of that place one day (laughs) (laughs) until of course we get to the out damn spot out I say (laughs) moment yeah Like, as you said, like, the interior scenes are unquestionably not as exciting as, say, the opening when the the soldier himself is, like, literally falling off his horse and banging mm-hmm. on the door. And, you know, the, all the soldiers obviously have the banners of the castles that they represent. Um, probably not good wartime strategy, but it gives you something more visually, like, interesting to look at, seeing, like, flapping in the intense wind. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, these interior scenes aren't as good. And I think also that this is a very strict adaptation of the Scottish play. So you see every beat coming, because mm-hmm. obviously we read it all in high school. Yeah. Um, and there's no deviation there, really in the story other than maybe the, the implication of a uh, of uh, his wife being pregnant and that really pushing him to that really vanquish his friend who as as the prophecy prophecy says his son will ascend to the throne after him so again but i don't i don't want to chalk it up to the like i don't want to take credit away obviously it's still like a gorgeous yeah. movie and you know it kind of comes full circle with you know like once he realizes that there's no getting out of his situation he starts really kind of going mad and then we get he gets the vision of the trees moving the tree i don't know what inspired (laughs) him to do that but that is just a creepy as hell image and you know the payoff (laughs) for it is just kind of brilliant so i I, you know again all credit to credit is due and again maybe that's kind of the point for those wide vista scenes shot on the side of mount fuji for them to really be as powerful and um, impactful as they are, maybe you do need those quiet interior scenes that we get. Like, maybe it wouldn't have meant so much if we didn't have that downtime inside with the palace intrigue. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe we should give a little bit more credit. And also, uh, I, I do want to mention this. Like, obviously, I adore, as, I'm, as I've said myriad of times, I adore Akira Kurosawa because he basically made movies for chumps like me. <laughs> <laughs> stupid western american moviegoers exactly and so and 
so if you look, he doesn't have the same cultural impact that he did in Japan because he made movies for Western that appealed way more to Western audiences. So I was wondering if the interior scenes and his uh, imitation of no style theater is if he's trying to emulate a Japanese culture in order to kind of placate Japanese critics or mm. the the culture at large that says like we have one way of doing it and that's the way we're going to do it and and we hate any deviation from that and mm. so I don't know maybe he's trying to marry these two styles like obviously he was inspired by D.W. Griffith and American silent film directors but also trying to marry a style that it's like an Ozu film like all those films are big wide angles of like people sitting down on their tatami mats and so yeah maybe he's trying to match like marry the two and and maybe that's where also the the contrast doesn't always work i mean yeah you can see the reasoning behind it but in terms of the actual results of entertainment it doesn't doesn't uh, always add up to an a plus no, I mean, but it's also just kind of funny to think about it in terms of that way, the way that the like culture is just kind of an Ouroboros eating its own tail. Like yeah. he's adapting <laughs> he's adapting a Western play, one of the most celebrated English plays, trying to do yes. it in a Japanese style. And what is Akira Kurosawa also famous for? For inspiring a bunch of Westerns and a lot of Western culture yeah. as well, like Star Wars, for yeah. example. So it's like it all just it all just kind of like becomes a great big melting pot. So I mean, I'm glad you kind of pointed that out because, I mean, I was kind of taken aback when it did come to those kind of like wide angle throne scenes because, like, let's not bring it up, but Game of Thrones. Oh, bad writing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it was hard not to think about it while watching, you know, Throne of Blood. And it is kind of funny watching that contrast of I'm used to if we're watching like a chamber drama and the kind of internal politics of a castle, I was picturing like a Western castle. But the throne room in here is completely outdoors and all the subjects, you know, sit on one on, you know, either side of him in this big open, Mm -hmm. you know, arena. And it's just kind of like funny watching that. And as a Westerner, it's like I was kind of taken aback. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess this is how they did it back in the day. That's kind of weird. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm used to like, you know, big thrones and big hallways and big grand Mm -hmm. buildings. So it's just kind of funny, like the way the the cultural stew works. Yeah. And you're probably right, because I was looking at the costumes, and particularly like the plated armor that they wear. And I'm thinking that looks exactly like some of the latter season Game of Thrones and the little mm. pits that they have. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking of particularly of Tyrion's costume. So yeah, we could see his his influence like everywhere, not just production design. But I guess I want to get to this and and also the final scene, the cinematography and the way that he stages things. Mm. Um, as you said, he I think this is the first time he gets to play with like uh, magic tricks in terms of like like moving things at it, like all playing with effects in the camera, like a uh, George Millier or something <laughs> like, uh, pulling the ca- like, uh, pushing the camera in on, uh, on Toshiro Mufe- uh, Mufune's character and then pulling it back. And the apparition is there. Mm-hmm. Um, I like in particular the, um, the scene, the scene in which they bring the, uh, vanquished, uh, He's the King Duncan character. He's, mm-hmm. I, I guess, the Lord Lord of the Castle is, is the proper term for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way in which he's shot at the gate. In the foreground is his ridiculous helmet with a big crescent moon in it. <laughs> but then you see the gate, and then you see like the archers and the, and the guards behind that. Like So the, the way that in which he uses the frame is brilliant, including... And let's get to the final scenes, huh? <laughs> that's, mm. what, that's what I think this really... Yeah, if... Like, people are cutting together a reel of the best of Akira Kurosawa. This is what they're going to take from Throne of Blood, is the ending. I mean, he took Shakespeare to heart. Lots of slings and yeah. arrows, let me tell you. Yeah. Lots of arrows. <laughs> 
I, I know I've, I've already mentioned the name. Yes, the curse, curse of Macbeth. I, it's probably a p- silly superstition, but there's no greater nail in that coffin in the fact that Tashiro Mufune did not get hit by a literal arrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assumed it was all like strings. I assumed there was some kind of safety. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too is like nine people get hit with arrows and they just kind of like shake them off in this movie. They're just like, ah, get this out of here. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> well, it's proper armor. It's Dan. They've. Obviously, Japan had a system for this, even no. back in the 16th century. So, <laughs> Or, excuse me, 17th. Whatever. It's fine. Well, who cares? Um, yeah. So, you're right. Uh, Akira Kurosawa, as uh, wanting his vision, mm-hmm. wanted to show uh, Toshiro Mufune's terrified face as uh, his troops finally uh, turn on him, and as he's uh, finally facing justice for killing killing the, the equivalent of King Duncan. Uh, and so... He literally shot in uh, a wide of Tashiro Mufune with actual archers firing arrows just to his right in the foreground. So those were <laughs> real arrows. Right his left. I assumed it was yes. like some kind of trickery of string or something like that. No, those were real yeah. arrows? Damn. Yeah, well, yes, there, there was a trickery. You can actually see this because the shutter, uh, shutter speed speeds up. Mm-hmm. But there is when, a, when an arrow actually strikes him. That's a, that's a fake arrow. Oh, okay. But, and I think, I think he wanted to demonstrate this. Because he's he's up against the wall and you see the sh- arrows in the foreground and he actually he actually knocks the arrows off the wall mm-hmm. um, and I think that is to demonstrate no these are real arrows you can see there's no string attached I can oh, move past them interesting yeah, okay. so, so yeah. that's kind of the yeah I think well, there was no, a demonstration I, of that too and I totally understand now what you're saying because it seems like he literally used every take he got <laughs> of shot <Yeah>. shooting <laughs> arrows because this sequence goes on for like five minutes of him like outrunning these yes. arrows. <laughs> Well, I was shocked. It feels so brief, actually, to me, because maybe it's because latter day epic Kurosawa's they they tend to drag a little bit as he got a little older. Mm-hmm. So this whole sequence seemed to go by like pretty quickly to me. It's, speaking of which, he also knew how to use um, violence and grotesquerie, because that's that's not the ultimate final frame. He does Mufune's character does get an, an arrow through the neck. Mm, that's true. And you know, not going down easily. There's there's a shot of just his bug eyes as he descends <laughs> the stairs, and all the other soldiers are freaking out because here's 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 a vision that's just as fantastical as as the as the witches that prophesied <laughs> to him earlier, until he finally succumbs to his his wounds. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you gotta I get know. those grindhouse butts into seats. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> check out this movie. This guy gets a fucking arrow in the neck. <laughs> Are you, hey, is is Scorsese or Tarantino any less brilliant for using violence Look, and grotesque? That's what that's what makes cinema such a magical art form. It, it it's high art, but also it it gives you your most base desires. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it also feeds that twelve year old boy within you. Yeah. <laughs> And he does it here. Um, in spite of some very small demerits, it's a brilliant movie. And mm-hmm. Kurosawa remains a brilliant filmmaker. And I love him. And if you have any disagreements, you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, I can't lie. I can't say that this movie isn't an absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant, <laughs> sweeping vision. Uh, but then again, I've, I feel like I've already seen... My favorite Akira Kurosawa is Seven Samurai. 
And yeah. in my book, that has yet to be topped. So, I mean, granted, mm. I still have a lot more to go. I still haven't seen Akiru. I still haven't seen Yojimbo. Uh, you've recommended Ran yeah. on this podcast before, but I haven't seen that one either. I haven't even seen Redbeard, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, there are a few that I, I wouldn't subject you to. Ron, Ron goes very long. So, oh, okay. um, <laughs> and in spite, of, in spite of it being filmed in sumptuous color and having all the same production mm, design. Sumptuous. I will take nothing less for yes. my color films. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot more that I, I could recommend. But, uh, John, I'll, I'll give you small doses, all right? <laughs> do, not have, do not have too much Kurosawa. You will resent his absence. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, so revisiting this, I also wanted to talk about, and we talked about, you know, Tishir Mufume. But apparently yeah. they kind of had a falling out at some point that I was reading. I yes. was just reading about this movie and I heard that they had a following out. Is there like, what would you say is like the best Kurosawa film without him? Because again, I've never seen a Kurosawa film not starring Mufune. Yeah. So it's hard for me to imagine a movie where he doesn't star. And you know, how does, how does one young Kurosawa uh, <laughs> uh, equate himself without yeah, his well, muse? Without his muse. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I will say that the best films of, of Kurosawa's do, of uh, do feature Mifune. However, again, I like every one of his films. I believe I've showed you uh, one of his last films, also shot in color, Dreams. Mm. Um, that's one in which I think Mifune had, had passed away, unfortunately, at that point. Uh, but there's also Ikuro. He's, te- he's not technically an Ikuro, I don't think. Mm-hmm. That one stars his other frequent collaborator, who only has a small bit part in this one, uh, Takeshi Shimura. Okay. Um, kind of the older man. He's, he's the lead samurai in that movie, if you remember. Um, He's he's got that perfect that perfect stern frowny face, um, <laughs> and in in Ikuro, it's it just it transmits worlds of sadness um, as he faces his <laughs> impending death. So it, maybe we'll revisit uh, Ikuro at some point. Uh, the other one I like is his first color movie. Uh, already we're getting into spotlight here, but <laughs> the, the one I'll also hold, wholeheartedly recommend. It's also in the Criterion Collection. It's called Dodeska Den. Uh, it's about uh, people living in a dump, <laughs> and, mm. uh, but it's shot it's shot beautifully in in full color. And the title refers to a um, a mentally challenged character who's obsessed with trains and trolleys, and so he 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 fancies himself a conductor and he imitates the uh, the clanging of the wheels going on the track, and that's the onomatopoeia that he's making to Den. So, oh, okay, that's another that's another brilliant early brilliant in my mind. I mean, it it is like. <laughs> Sorry, it's, since I alluded to it earlier, it's it's better quality than Crash, but it is like Crash. It's telling multiple different stories going on mm-hmm. inside this little, uh, inside this uh, uh, small commune of uh, homeless folks. Okay, it's his Forrest yeah. Gump, as it were. Yeah, I, sure, sure. <laughs> Never go full retard. Yeah, <laughs> he's not the star, John. He's he's the connective glue because mm-hmm. he's going around. He's he's running the trolley schedule, and so he's he's our interlude into all these stories. I mean, that's the other weird thing I had. I have to kind of this hump that I also have to get over. A, I can't picture yeah. him working without Mifune, but also B, a, a contemporary Akira film. I, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I again, I, I don't want to criticize the emperor. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like as he got older, like things, like the criticism that you had of every shot being wide, there is far less movement going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, the movie he did before Ron, it's called like uh, Kanga Kanga Maska or something like that, and that movie feels like every shot is just kind of like done in wide, and it was a, it, I, I will say slightly disappointing. Oh, <laughs> not, oh not enough, wow! None of the I pulled it out of him, exactly. folks. I was able to get yeah. him to to admit. <laughs> 
<laughs> Some of his movies are weaker than others. Hmm. Yeah. But uh, regardless of whether it stars the brilliant Toshiro Mifune or not, um, I think there's something to be found in all 50 of Kurosawa's films, including Throne of Blood. Mm. Oh, yes, absolutely. Highly John, I won't even ask if you agree. I know you do. So Highly recommended from the aspiring snobs. Let's give this guy the yeah. bump. This is a Kurosawa yes. guy. He's going places. <laughs> I keep calling him a Kurosawa. And, I keep like trying yes. to make a portmanteau with his full name. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. Also, just to apologize to any weeaboos out there. Um, yes, technically it should be Kurosawa, Akira. Whatever. We're American. We speak American. All right. We go first name first. All right. Call us. Call us. Call us Mantel, John, and Greg. All we care. I don't, I don't give a damn. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just used to saying. I, so it's funny. We we both seen the movie Akira. And yeah. like someone explained to me that the reason why that title is so kind of um, generic but also powerful is because like Akira is the Japanese equivalent of like Steve. So I just think of it. Yeah. So I just can't help but call him Akira Kurosawa because I like to think of him as like Steve Kurosawa. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's just my personal problem. So okay. <laughs> Also, maybe that would have improved that movie if it was just called Steve. Yeah. I would watch yeah. a movie called oh. Steve. Yeah. Sorry that, sorry that Akira doesn't qualify. Oh, no, you won't get our... our our hot take on it that uh, Akira is bad. <laughs> not a good movie. <laughs> what do you think would, would do not ruffle... enjoy zero stars? Well, <laughs> what, what, what do you think would ruffle more feathers? Like our opinions of Akira, or our opinions of Blade Runner? Because also both of us share a uh... a minority opinion of Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, I've I've heard f- already. We share a lot of contrarian opinions about Blade Runner, about it being slow and ponderous. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not heard any dissenting opinions on Akira and its kind of meandering storyline. Or, um, <laughs> uh, by the way, there was a revolution at some point in that. I don't know. Somebody was like bleeding out in an alley. It doesn't matter. It's fine. Um, so, I, again, I don't want to make this the, the crap on Akira. I want to lift up uh, a Kurosawa Akira, if you ask me. So, oh, okay. <laughs> and just. I should have said this at the top. If you do aspire to be snobs like we do, this is a Shakespearean adaptation, but also a foreign language film. That's like double. (laughs) That's a a multiplier right there. Exactly. You'll appear doubly smart to all your friends when you recommend, oh, I saw this lovely Japanese film the other day. (laughs) Yeah. But don't worry, it adapts Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) The bard. The bard, as he was known. (laughs) So if you were afraid it was... Unapproachable. Let me tell you, it's yeah. not so much. <laughs> yes, I say that I sh- say the uh, Shakespeare adaptation, but of course, all all people know he didn't really author his plays. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably Marlowe. Yeah, whatever. I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna be Roland Emmerich. I saw point. this. I saw this great film by the a masterclass by Roland Emmerich, the auteur. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, Greg, we've talked a lot of shit. We've talked a lot of shit, but we've also given a lot of recommendations. Exactly. Let's just let's just keep it, this ball rolling. Let's just keep it going. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get into wholehearted recommendations that we conclude every episode with our signature section spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Spotlight. Beep, 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 beep. Yes. Who's going first? Uh, I I will, okay. John, because I've. I've got to admit something. I I made you watch a Kurosawa film, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and I how, how do I want to phrase this? Um, <laughs> it's only his penance because I want to personally thank you for the spotlight. Okay, um, 
this is a book that you gave me for Christmas. I had no idea what it was. I had no idea. I'd never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say that uh, in spite of, in spite of how much I, I dislike every, every other uh, aspect of your taste, <laughs> I really like this book. <laughs> it's a history book called The Mirage Factory by Gary Christ. Mm. And I will admit, I think this present was a bit of a, uh, uh, fuck it, I'll just pick this up, Greg might read it, so, but yeah. nice to know that uh, I still got it, without even trying, I can still give a good gift. Yeah. <sighs> so you weren't familiar with Gary Christ? No, I'm not familiar with Gary Christ. Okay, because it turns out... I mean, besides the fact that he's a his... major booze hound, let me tell you, oh, we were out <laughs> drinking the other night. So, John, it turns out that his racket, his beat, his oeuvre, mm-hmm. is uh, little kind of potted histories uh, histories of cities. Oh, okay. uh, Namely, the one he did before this is uh, New Orleans, a city that I know you have affection for. Ooh. So I thought you had read that and then thought, oh, he did one in Los Angeles, too. I'll give that because John Greg makes his residence there. So. I mean, I do love travelogues. Like, Sarah Vowell is one of my yeah. favorite authors, although she was semi-canceled a little while ago. But we, no, we won't <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> Not semi. Like, literally, she should have been torn asunder. She should have been tarred and feathered for those debate takes, but those hot takes in the New York Times, yeah, the failing it's New York hot, Times, it's the hot, they're tepid, yeah, it's tepid. Hot, that is, we that demand is, that intellectual is purity. That is weak tea from the petty bourgeoisie. Here. There you go. Does she not know where she lives? Come on, I know. Anywho, yes, this book I, yes. I brilliantly gave you as a gift. Continue. <laughs> So I say, I say potted history. It's basically telling a great man's story. Uh, this basically encapsulates the history of Los Angeles between 1900 and 1930, as told by three individuals. Uh, William Mulholland and his, his great pipeline from the Owens Valley, uh, basically decimating a farming community. Mm. Uh, D.W. Griffith, a brilliant uh, director, directing one of the most racist films of all time. <laughs> and finally... <laughs> Amy McPherson, uh, evangelist, uh, who got into a scandal later in life. Well, I'll get to that later. But uh, Kirst, it turns out, is a very brilliant writer. Like his his prose is is outstanding. Um, he 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 has an extremely impressive vocabulary, including the use of the word insouciance, uh, which I which I really like. So I've never heard of this word, and I wa- I want yeah. it. I want it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's a brilliant writer, and yeah, he's telling the the story, basically creating a, a myth around these three figures the best two in particular are or at least the, the best told stories of these mythic figures are william mulholland and dw griffith because they both have like projects that were that they're working on in mulholland's case it was the pipeline to basically transport water and enables the city's astronomic growth during the early 20th century hmm. um same with dw griffin who once he's given an opportunity to direct creates all these innovations and then is finally able to tell his his masterpiece uh however misguided because he was a he was a old southern guy um who mm-hmm. didn't see the inherent racism behind it but birth of a nation and then intolerance and his other projects from there so those are kind of the those are really the kind of the key figures here the the one that got short shrift is amy mcpherson because I think it's more ambiguous what she's working on she's an evangelist and uh, by all accounts she does come it does come by that uh, her faith honestly and the the church that she establishes but i i don't think there's any way for him to kind of speak definitively on that because he is a historian and there's mm. there's only so much that like kind of psychology that 
he can bring behind her. And as we find out later, the reason that he really profiles her and makes her part of this triptych of, of great figures in early 20, in early 20th century Los Angeles is because she, she was rife with scandal after this uh, disappearance mishap. Um, she, she had like disappeared and everyone thought it was a ransom. And then she told this kind of tall tale about how she survived in the desert, uh, got away from her, got away from her kidnappers and, and broke herself out of the ropes and walked three days across the desert. And everyone's like, well, well, Amy, where are your sunburns? Where are your rope, where are your rope wounds? Um, I mean, who, who's this guy, who's this guy that you were seeing and flirting with, um, in public, even though you're the, the very public head of this church. I mean, but I, I can kind of see the point he's trying to make is that the, yeah. the, birth of the modern evangelical movement or at least what we would consider the maybe the billy grams of the world does sound like it kind of has a direct yeah. path straight from her so it kind of makes sense that he would at least try to tie it back into this time period or something like that maybe talking about the gestation period it feels a little less uh kind of fulfilling than talking about like a billy graham character or the kind of the televangelist who would follow but i get i get what he's trying to do with that yeah well, yeah, and he's well. That's a thing. That's a little criticism. I don't think he connects it enough to modern history, mm. like as it, like to the extent that there is a film industry because of D.W. Griffith's uh, incredible financial success and innovations in filmmaking. There is uh, a, a basically a city still today because William Mulholland and his team was able to transport water all the way from the Owens Valley, and. That, that, but we are kind of missing that connection. I th- I think the only really thing that she pushed was radio and how kind of media was kind of mm. transforming at least at, at least how to connect um connect the audience connect to audiences spiritually in the way that she did. I mean, um, if only so, evangelicals learned and would take advantage of radio one day. <laughs> what if what a missed opportunity? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. They don't use uh, our media enough, but. <laughs> I uh, yeah I kind of miss the there there's not a lot of connection to today although he's very good at editorializing like putting in like little moments of like fact checking or just um, like saying where a newspaper's coming from when it's reporting on a certain event so he's very good at contextualizing but he doesn't connect it enough to history and also he very touches touches on this briefly and I think this this is going to mean a lot to our audience. This is not a people's history of the United States. There's mm. only there's literally only one to two paragraphs on the massive diversity of of Los Angeles, like from its its burgeoning black population to the amount of Hispanics that were coming over, Asian populations emigrating to the United States mm. and and contributing so much to uh, the culture of Los Angeles. A lot of that is kind of like glossed over. So he is really concerned with telling. The stories, like telling three basically short biographies of these three figures, kind of tying it into the subject of you know commerce, like arts and religion, and you know it's it's very good at that, but its its scope is I think a little too limited. And maybe maybe that's what he's working with as a, as a historian. Like he doesn't want to say like oh I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even deign to try to like connect this to 21st century Los Angeles or try to uh, get into the psychology of these people <laughs> or. <laughs> you know, bite off a, a bigger piece of, of the apple than I can chew. So I, I will say it's a very compelling story that he's writing in terms of being like actual big history. It doesn't quite capture that, but it's a great read. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, The Mirage Factory by Gary Christ. Okay. Thumbs up. <laughs> All right. Glad I recommended it. Remember what yes. we always say when when we when we like something that the other has recommended. I made this happen. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And John, I will give credit. I want to give credit where credit is due. You did make this happen. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll have to pick up one of his uh, books, especially the New Orleans one. Yes. 
Maybe it's about jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think jazz will be mentioned? I sure hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, that's something else I wanted to mention. Uh, Ken Burns uh, just announced his next new uh, project that's going to be premiering on PBS. Which is Nolens or well, Greg? He's already done one of the the premier American music genre. What do you think the next big American music genre? He oh, that's for? right! I saw an ad for it. Country, yep. country music. Look forward yes. to twelve hours about Woody Guthrie, and then half an hour <laughs> on uh, Rascal Flatts. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> he better touch on Old Town Road. I mean that that is a real history maker. There, there you go. I mean. Yeah. If it's anything like jazz, again. I mean, a, I mean, a colored person breaking into music, country music, unheard of. <laughs> we got Hootie. Uh, what's I, I know he's got a name outside of Hootie, but everyone knows him as yeah. Hootie, so I will refer to him yeah. as such. <laughs> yes, John. Let's let's get off this topic before I get into more, any more trouble. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Greg, it's apropos that this week we did Throne of Blood this week because mm-hmm. uh, I'm also keeping my spotlight in uh, a quite easternly direction, shall we say. Uh, I got to catch uh. up on a little indie this week called The Farewell. Ah, this is the this was the Sundance darling out of this year. Mm-hmm. And, and um, getting some Oscar buzz, I believe, or at least, yeah, definitely hitting all the... Uh, all the, the all the good uh, solid independent points uh, leading up to award season, but I don't want to. I mean, that I is. Don't, I don't want to talk about a movie that I haven't seen, John. You I mean, ahead. you kind of buried the lead right there because I guess my biggest yeah. criticism of this film is it does feel genetically engineered to be like the perfect kind of indie hit. Uh, step one, mm-hmm. it's based on a This American Life story. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. It stars Aquafina as Billy, and uh, mm-hmm. it's based on the real experiences of the uh, writer and director Lulu Wang. Uh, basically, Lulu Wang, she was uh, an expat from uh, China. Her family moved from China when she was very young, but they still kept in touch with the family, and she grew very close, a long-distance kind of relationship with her grandma, Nai Nai. And yeah. uh, at a very kind of tumultuous time in Billy's life, she's struggling uh you know, paying the rent. She's struggling finding a job. She just got turned down for this writing fellowship. Uh, she discovers that uh, Nai Nai has lung cancer, terminal lung cancer, yeah. a three-month-to-live prognosis. And yeah. the family, and what she learns is from Chinese customs, you tell the immediate family, so it's up to them for them to tell the actual family member. It's not the doctor's place to tell, it's the family's place. And the family has mm-hmm. decided not to tell her. Mm-hmm. So, but they want to give a, a chance for the whole family to get together so they concoct this crazy scheme where one of her cousins is going to expedite his wedding. He's been dating this uh, Japanese girl for three months. They're going to get married just so they have the excuse to have the wedding in China to get everybody together and, you know, see Nai Nai one more time before she expires. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so... Don't put, don't put it that way and laugh. <laughs> Well, no, and so the the drama's wrung from the fact that uh, Billy is kind of the only one who Mm -hmm. seems kind of uncomfortable with this situation. Not that she's the only one who's uncomfortable with the situation, but she's the most vocal party member who's kind of like, this is kind of messed up, guys. She should know, and we should all get the chance to say goodbye. But the rest of the family, the way they see it is that this is their emotional burden that they're going to carry. And as soon as Nai Nai finds out, they feel like she's just going to worry herself to death and to an even earlier, faster grave. So, yeah. Um, and also a lot of the comedy of this movie, it's kind of a dramedy, you know, it's a, it's an indie yeah. darling. Like, again, think of every cliche you can imagine with an indie <laughs> darling, and it's pretty much that. Um, yeah. 
a lot of the comedy is mined from the fact that the family is very reserved, resigned. They know the truth and they're trying to hide it from Nainai, who is a woman with absolutely no scruples and is always speaking her mind at all times. Like, again, this the whole story is based around this, like, fake wedding. And the whole time, Nine is like, I don't like this woman. I don't think she should be marrying him. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of rushed, don't you think? So it's just kind of funny that, you know, the grandma is the one who's open and honest with her feelings. And everyone else is trying to yeah. hide the fact that they're so sad and that they really want to say goodbye and really tell her how they feel. But mm-hmm. it's it's a very sweet and sentimental movie, and it's it's hard not to get swept up in the emotions. And Aquafina is really really good in it. I know her okay. mostly from uh, her comedic side. She obviously has a lot of comedic chops, but she turns yeah. in a really good performance this uh, movie, and she does a really good job. Okay. Um, the other um, the other kind of important factor of this movie is all really about culture clash. Uh, there's a lot mm-hmm. of debt owed to Lost in Translation, weirdly, um, even though that takes place <laughs> in Japan. But well, yeah, that's well. I wanted to ask about that. It seems like the the most interesting character, and I don't know how do you feel if they didn't focus on her. But it's the it's the wife from Japan um, who's the outsider in this family and is now really forced emotionally to be there for her, even if she's only dated this guy for three months. Um, like how how is her character treated? I mean, uh, not well because <laughs> she doesn't really have okay. much at all. Like again, the joke is the fact that she's just kind of like an outsider just kind of like shocked by everything because the other thing too mm-hmm. is she doesn't speak chinese so everyone is kind of like speaking uh, around her all she can kind of do is like nod and smile and be like okay i understand what you're talking okay. about and she has no idea what anyone's talking about <laughs> um okay. but again it like it opens to be up. fair yes i mean I've, just to be fair based on how the japanese have traded treated the chinese in history um mm-hmm. it's fair if they leave her on the outside of some things but well, i won't go with i won't go there yeah it opens up a whole like again the other kind of themes that the movie is playing with is the fact that you know there's this culture clash and at a certain mm-hmm, point yeah. there is a um kind of divisive conversation about well we moved to america to give a better life for our children it's like oh so they couldn't have a good life in china and you know like how much are they willing to criticize china or at least can they talk about living in china without degraded dating their own culture which is obviously very rich and obviously everyone's like having a good time so you can't say like oh china's not a good place to live and billy herself even ponders like she's got nothing going on in america she's like barely getting by and she wonders like maybe i would be better off in china maybe i should move back and take care of nai nai in her last days on earth so Mm. like again it's it's a rich tapestry even though it is playing by it oftentimes feels like it's playing by the indie cheat sheet there's a moment towards the third <laughs> act where everyone's walking in slow motion and we get the score or you know like the little twangy indie hit and i'm like oh wes anderson when did you show up um <laughs> and i don't want to like disparage the director because i mean she doesn't have like a yeah. huge cv but it's like i think this is one of like maybe her second or third kind of like full-length movie so i can kind of tell that you know she's like she's maybe not super comfortable yet even though she's telling a very personable story a personal story and so like obviously it's told very well but i can't help but feel like okay you're you're this is obviously a movie that is extremely calculated to get the sundance attention and uh the critics choice and uh, but it's still very well done it's still extremely well done okay Mm -hmm. all right yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I, guess. I mean, it's a cynical. You know, it's a cynical. Tear, you can't tear away from the cynicism. Yeah. Exactly, it's the cynical <laughs> of, uh, side of me that says, like, eh, how much, how much of this is like your actual choices versus how you know. And yeah. again, like I, I talked about the fact that it was like 
uh, this originated as a This American Life story, but, you know, thankfully, Ira Glass's muddy fingerprints aren't anywhere all over this. So. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't a Mike Are you sure Rubiglia he's not movie. he's not like a credited producer? Because I know that's how Mike Rubiglia got his directorial debut is taking his uh, uh, I don't think so. This American Life story and basically adapting it for film. No, but. I didn't see his name anywhere. But the other thing to kind of think about and I kinda of wish I had a little more context on, this is a co Chinese production, so it's like starting the oh, movie, there's like twelve different logos going on at the same time. Okay. Um <laughs> so I do kind of wonder how much influence because, uh, you know, they they portray China as very realistic, and it's not, you know, mm-hmm. and the characters do criticize uh, its oppressive government. and Not their oppressive government, but the fact that there's kind of a lack of opportunity, comparatively speaking, to America. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so, um, and, you know, it's like, it's kind of funny, like, when there's a lot of scenes in New York at the beginning and end, and, you know, those scenes are very kind of, like, colorful, and it takes place in New York, and those scenes very feel very populated and lively, and then when Billy goes mm-hmm. to China, everything becomes very gray, everything becomes very overcast, <laughs> and it's kind of like all the life has been drained out, and I don't know if that's to, like, reflect the oppression of what it's like to live in China, or maybe it's the fact that... Mm-hmm. Again, like the tone of the movie, even though it is kind of a dramedy, is kind of dirge-like because, again, they're expecting Nai-Nai to die within three months. So maybe that's what the mm. the whole kind of change in atmosphere is meant to represent. I don't know. But it's good movie. Highly recommended. Check it out if you get the chance. Okay. Jaunt on down yeah. to the local cinema and support independent film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's half, uh, it's half Chinese. So a lot of it's in English, but some of it's Chinese. So you can say that you saw a Chinese film and you read the words on the screen. So, you know, you ain't no dummy. So, you know, yeah. there's always that to consider. Having said that, I want to compare it to my second favorite uh, director from Japan. That's uh, <laughs> Hirokazu Kureda. And it sounds like one of his films because they're, they're all like familial dramas and mm-hmm. yeah, things being left unsaid. And having a, light, a little bit more of a lighter uh, kind of dramedy tone rather than serious drama. He hasn't, he hasn't quite done this kind of storyline yet other than maybe like still walking. But yeah, I, mean, I think it is up my alley. So I'm going to see it even though I think, I don't know how much longer it's going to be in cinemas. Although there's, there's not a whole lot, lot coming out in August. I mean, no. I don't think, I don't think it's going to be displaced by the live action door the explorer movie <laughs> i mean and also they just canceled the hunt so they got to fill those theaters yeah. somehow <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh boy we didn't even touch on that yeah. Ugh. no Ugh. i i somebody did point out hysterically maybe this is a candidate for a movie we can watch in the future but uh there's another movie starring mads mickelson called the hunt that ah. is about a hysterical mob uh, basically perverting justice on uh, incorrect assumptions. Because so. they think he's a pederast. <laughs> I know this movie. Yes. It's on the yes. IMDb Top 250. It's been, yeah, it's been recommended to us a lot, and we haven't seen it yet. Because <laughs> we've, we've only got so much time. John, we're doing more than a podcast. We're also running social media feeds. It's true. I mean, social media might be garbage. emails. But it's yeah. the best way to keep in touch with all of the hottest aspiring snobs news. So check us out Indeed. on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. And if you want a more personal communique, 
We also have an email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com, where we do take recommendations like The Hunt. If you do <laughs> desperately want us to see The Hunt, we will save it for a future episode. Mm. So send us recommendations. Send us your thoughts on Akira Kurosawa. Um, I can guarantee you do not love him as much as I do, so don't even try. <laughs> oh, Greg, do not challenge them. Do not challenge them. The internet. I, I, I am ready for that challenge, oh, Sean. Wow. I, am, I am trained and ready. Okay? <laughs> okay. Did you not see me deploy deploy that, those facts, those trivial facts? Um, did <laughs> like, you, like have you visited his home? land in shinobi or whatever <laughs> i do know i well i do have plans to visit his homeland oh. uh, i have a book i have a trip booked and sadly th- completely unappreciative japan there is not a museum dedicated to mr kurosawa mm. an outrage again criminal even the fact that they have they have a museum for oh studio ghibli yeah, whatever <laughs> get one for the godfather i mean they've kurosawa. been they've been now. bidding on the rights to build a lucas museum for crying out loud like <laughs> yeah this is absurd. Hell, we'll make it here in America. Yes. <laughs> since you, since Japan, clearly you don't appreciate him. Mm. I picture it in the Pacific Northwest. I can see it right outside Seattle. <laughs> I think that would be the best place for it. No. Yeah. I think, I think we should get rid of the Academy Museum that's taking like 40 <laughs> years to, 40 years to finish. <laughs> this stupid Death Star looking thing. No. Anyway. <laughs> oh, sorry, we're getting too in the LA weeds. Yes. Too, too much in the LA weeds. But hey, yes. there's one more thing you can do for us. Since we just gave you yeah. an hour of bang up content yeah why don't you go to your podcast service of choice whether it's stitcher or apple Podcasts or spotify and rate us five stars that way more yeah. people will find us we'll be pushed up to the top of the recommendations list and you know this let's just get this viral ball rolling all right let's let help people catch the virus absolutely now i was going to add the caveat only give us five stars if you did genuinely enjoy if you do genuinely enjoy the show. Mm. However, I, I'm feeling more like the farewell situation. I'd rather you lie about it. <laughs> exactly. And say, oh, this, this is a five star show. Just give us the rating. Even if you don't think it's worth five stars. No, I mean, treat, um, it, treat I, it like Dora the Explorer. It's just a joke, man. It's all meta. Okay. <laughs> like I'm giving them no, five I, stars. is like a joke, you know, irony. <laughs> I'm cool with that. I, no, I'll take I, it. <laughs> no, it's more the personal. Like I can't emotionally take the weight of say a three star review or God oh. forbid a two or one star review. Yeah, no, honestly, if someone left me, us so. a three star review, I'd be like, pick a side, dude. What? Come on, <laughs> Donald Trump is president. You can't be like that wishy washy. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yes, pick a side, Greg or John. <laughs> you have to choose. <laughs> Even though I think we agree more often than not. Exactly. Whatever. This is like Cap versus Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? (laughs) I know. It'll be around for generations to come. But, John, let's talk about another uh, generational classic, huh? It's the movie we're watching next week. Ah, yes. Because next week (laughs) we're watching... Take your time. (laughs) I can't remember. Uh, Let me look it up. Well, okay, we have a special episode planned for next week, so I think that's why I forgot, because we have a special surprise for all you folks out there. We'll be revisiting the 2007 film, Zodiac. Yes, I think this is our first David Fincher joint, is Mm -hmm. it not? It is, and actually we've both seen it, but I think we're going to be having a very special (laughs) guest. Oh, no. Yes. Wait, you mean... There's an opportunity where people aren't just going to hear us two blather on about a topic. We're going to be like every other successful podcast and actually have another voice come in occasionally. I mean, if you really are those podcasts successful, quote unquote, yeah. how do we really measure success? Mon- monetarily, yes. Um, <laughs> 
critically, yes. Uh, Popularity-wise, yes. If <laughs> those are your measures, if those are your measures, are passe, in say I say. <laughs> guests are passe. Yeah. I say people tune in for the John and Greg experience, and man, yeah. they get it mainlined right into their veins. And yes, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. No. I say. No, but if this is uh, if this is a success, as I think it will be, um, maybe we will be maybe we will need to uh, bring in a guest every week. Okay. Uh, so I'm looking for booking agents right now. All um, right. Or heck, hey, I just told you our uh, email address. If you uh, want to <laughs> plug anything and be on a podcast, go ahead and send us an email. AspiringSnobs at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. We're down. All right. Why not? Uh, all inquiries. Yeah. Go to AspiringSnobs at yeah. gmail dot com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm laughing because yes. the idea that anyone would reach out to us to make a business deal is just hysterical to me. <laughs> oh, I, I'm already, I'm expecting a deluge of like 50, 50 emails. Like, hey, what's your social strategy here at <laughs> here at uh, here at Flimflam? We we have we've developed an algorithm. Eh, whatever. <laughs> we have a bot army ready to work for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, on that note, let's get those bots ready, and I yes. guess it's time to thank everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, uh, how would a samurai say keep aspiring? If, uh, if I were unoffensively? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Picture me doing my my best Shiro Mufudi impression and say, keep aspiring! <laughs> that sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that had, a, that had a great Klaus Kinski quality to it. So, yeah. I'll take it.